Welcome to Body Talk 2.0. I'm Allie. And I'm Ned. And today we're going to talk about cesarean sections. So first, Ned, just nice and simple, what is a C-section? All right. So C-section is delivering the fetus using an open abdominal incision. It's also called a uh, laparotomy, that incision, uh, as well as an incision to the uterus itself called a hysterotomy. A uh, quick story about the first time that I ever experienced a C-section in the OR. I had no idea that the patient was still supposed to be awake. So like a couple minutes into this thing, the patient said something from behind the curtain and I was immediately freaked out, was looking at the anesthesiologist like, hey, bro, are you going to like do something about this? And so uh, just a kind of funny thing to be aware of during this procedure, the patient is awake. Yes, that's definitely a good learning experience to move forward. So as a student, when you're in the OR for a C-section, just be aware the patient is awake. So as you're asking questions, just be conscious that they can also hear these questions that you're asking. So Ned, then what is the most common surgical procedure performed in the United States? Well, I'm really glad you asked because it's a C-section, if you could have guessed. I know, I, su- I set you up for an easy one <laughs> It was there. a softball. <laughs> But so just to start, you always want to make sure that you have an idea of the indications or why you're doing the procedure. So for a C-section, indications could be an entire topic in itself. So we're just going to touch on two common indications that you see for primary cesarean deliveries, according to ACOG. And you may hear us reference ACOG frequently during our episodes. Um, It stands for the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, and they release a lot of practice bulletins and best practice advice. So that's where some of our information will come from. So Ned, what's the first common indication that you see for primary C-sections? All right, so the first one is rest of labor, which is defined in the active phase. So that active phase is when the cervix is dilated up to six centimeters or greater um, with a membrane rupture and either of the two following things here. So the first one, four hours or more of adequate contracting defined by greater than 200 Montevideo units. I, that word, I, it's like a foreign language to me, but, uh, and then uh, six hours or more with inadequate contractions and no cervical change at all. And then I'm going to hand it off to Allie for the second one here because uh, she's uh, actually knows what she's talking about a little more than I do. So then the second indication that we'll talk about is something called non-reassuring fetal heart tracing. So you'll have to get familiar with fetal heart tracing. I'm not going to walk you through how necessarily to do that, but it's something you'll experience at least on your clerkship rotations, and it becomes more familiar as you go. So an indication is a Category 3 tracing remote from delivery. So what this means is it involves something called absent variability in any of the following. Bradycardia that doesn't respond to intrauterine resuscitation, such as changing maternal positioning, recurrent late decelerations, or recurrent variable decelerations. Also, a sinusoidal pattern is considered Category 3. So the gist here is you're essentially just monitoring the baby's fetal heart rate as the mom is in labor, and you're looking for any of these things which are going to be concerning signs and will lead to a C-section. Yeah, I just wanted to also ask Allie to make sure to clarify uh, for my own learning as well that we're talking about the baby's heart rate. And then a third thing that I was thinking of while I was talking, too, is that these can also be elective procedures as well. Absolutely, yes. So these are the indications where you definitely want to make sure that you do them, but there are reasons where you might have an elective procedure, and that kind of moves into the next point that we wanted to discuss, is that anytime you're doing surgery, clinical judgment is always going to come into play. 
So there's other pertinent aspects to an obstetrical history that you'll want to consider. And some examples would be whether or not a patient had a previous vaginal delivery that resulted in a very significant tear of the perineum. So a fourth degree perineal laceration is what that would be called. And we'll touch on that in a later episode. And also something with significant shoulder dystocia in a previous pregnancy would make you want to consider moving to a cesarean section. So now to get into the anatomy portion of the episode. So here we want to start off by talking about the anterior abdominal wall anatomy. With this being our first episode, it makes sense to cover this anatomy right out of the gate. It'll be relevant to both OBGYN as well as general surgery procedures. And anytime you're entering a patient's abdomen for a procedure, these questions are fair game to be asked for medical students because you really should know the structures that you're going through. So if we're starting superficially and working our way deeper into the abdominal cavity, Ned, what are the structures that we have? All right, so when you're starting off, you're going to be going through the skin as the most superficial layer. Underneath that, you'll have some subcutaneous tissue, or what they like to call sub-Q. You'll have campers fascia. Uh, This is more uh, fatty uh, layer of fascia. And underneath that, you'll have scarpus fascia, which is a little more membranous and Allie, how do you remember which one it comes first and which one comes second? Yeah, for campers and scarpa's fascia, I remember that C comes before S in the alphabet, so therefore campers fascia will be more superficial or what you encounter first, and then scarpa's will be below that. So then to return a question back to you, Ned, so next we'll have muscles of the abdominal wall. So laterally, there should be three muscles, and what are they? So the three muscles laterally are the external oblique, the internal oblique, and the transversalis abdominis muscle. And I'm gonna go ahead and ping pong it back to Allie since she wanted to toss it back to me as far as, do you, how do you remember like which fibers go where? It's not super important, but. Yeah, this goes back kind of to anatomy that you learned in the preclinical years, but you can remember the fiber directions of the external and internal oblique by using a little hand trick. So if you put your hands almost in your front pockets, that's going to be the direction of the external oblique fibers. So they will seem to take an inferior and a medial direction, where if you put your hands on your chest, you can see that the internal oblique fibers are going to go in a superior and medial direction. Just a little trick to keep them straight when you are on the spot and have to. So then medially, there's also two more muscles, Ned. What will those be? So that's the rectus muscle. That's like your uh, six-pack muscle. And then the pyramidalis muscle, which uh, I don't know if I've ever seen it in real life, to be honest. Uh, Yeah, the rectus muscle is definitely more important for a lot of what we'll talk about in the procedure, but just being aware that the pyramidalis muscle does exist is all you really have to know for that in terms of being in the OR. And then the last two layers will be the transversalis fascia, and then the parietal peritoneum is the deepest layer that you'll go through. There is a concept involving the rectus sheath that comes up very frequently in OBGYN procedures, and the rectus sheath is made up of the aponeuroses of the abdominal wall muscles, and whether or not you are above or below a certain line makes a difference. So when I say certain line, I guess this story of the rectus sheath starts with the arcuate line. So what is the arcuate line, Ned? So the arcuate line is a location that's approximately one-third of the distance between the umbilicus and the pubic symphysis. Exactly. And this line is important because the rectus sheath is going to look differently whether you're above that line or below the line. So above the arcuate line, the anterior rectus sheath is going to be made up of the aponeurosis of the external oblique and the anterior half of the internal oblique aponeurosis. Whereas the posterior rectus sheath, so running behind that rectus abdominis muscle, 
is going to be that other half of the internal oblique aponeurosis, as well as the transversalis fascia. So it's split anteriorly and posteriorly. Whereas once you get below that arcuate line that Ned just mentioned for us, that one-third of the distance between the umbilicus and the pubic symphysis, all of those aponeuroses from those muscles are going to be anteriorly, leaving only the transversalis fascia posteriorly. That's just a question that I've been asked in the operating room before, so just having an idea of the rectus sheath will help you out when you're in there. Yep, and correct me if I'm wrong too, but the uh, when we talked about the location of this imaginary line, they also relate it to where the inferior epigastric artery pierces into the uh, uh, rectus abdominis, if I'm, if I'm yes, remembering that correctly. that is correct. Great. So now that we finished talking about the layers of the abdominal wall, we're going to take a look at the blood supply. So there's three epigastric arteries that we're concerned about that supply the abdominal wall. And then what are they? You've got the superior, inferior, and superficial epigastric arteries. And Allie, can you tell us a little bit about where they come from? Yeah, so starting with the superior epigastric artery. So there's the internal thoracic or the mammary artery that comes off the subclavian artery and this artery will divide into two branches. So this is where we get the superior epigastric artery as well as the musculophrenic artery. So the superior epigastric artery is going to take an inferior course and it's going to run posterior and slightly lateral to the sternum. And then we have the inferior epigastric artery. So this is actually a branch of the external iliac artery above the inguinal ligament. So this is going to run on the posterior and the lateral aspect of the rectus abdominis muscle that we talked about earlier, and it's going to meet up with the superior epigastric artery. So the inferior epigastric artery comes from underneath and works its way up where it meets up with the superior epigastric artery that comes off of the internal thoracic artery and works its way down to form the anastomosis. And as a quick aside here, I'm going to give Ned his time to shine with a question that's going to foreshadow a future episode So what important role does the inferior epigastric artery have when we talk about hernias? I'm really glad you asked. So uh, the answer for that is that uh, the relation of the hernia uh, to the uh, location of the artery uh, basically gives you whether it's a direct or an indirect hernia. So direct hernias are medial to the inferior epigastric vessel and indirect hernias are lateral to the inferior epigastric artery. And we'll talk about this in a later episode as well, as well as uh, just quickly, uh, just for some repetition, there's the mnemonic MDs don't lie. So medial to the inferior epigastric are direct hernias, whereas lateral to the inferior epigastric are indirect hernias. So MDs don't lie. Awesome. So we talked about superior epigastric artery, inferior epigastric artery, and to finish off with the blood supply to the abdominal wall, we have the superficial epigastric artery. So this is a branch of the femoral artery, therefore it comes off the vessel below the inguinal ligament, and it's going to travel through the lateral aspect of the lower abdominal subcutaneous tissue. In this one, I was actually in a procedure with a gynecologic oncologist and was asked a question. I did not know the answer to this one. So I was asked, why is it important to write in your operative note whether or not you damage epigastric arteries in these procedures? And the answer was, it's important information for a surgeon to document because later down the road, if this same patient opts for a breast reconstructive surgery, they often use flaps of tissue that um, involves these arteries. I don't know the specifics Hmm. of those procedures, but that was just something that she had mentioned to, to keep an eye out for. No, that's interesting. So now that we've talked about the blood supply, 
If we talk about the abdominal incisions that are used during C-sections, it will kind of have a tie-in to a lot of these vessels and muscles that we talked about. So Ned, what is a very common incision that you see in the abdomen with these C-sections? So for C-sections, they use a uh, incision called a fan and steel incision a lot. And uh, I'll let Allie kind of explain what that is since she's probably done a few of those herself. I just wanted him to have to say it because I struggle <laughs> with the words, so I set him up there. So this incision is going to take a curvy linear uh, direction. It almost looks like a smile if you were drawing a smiley face is the best way to, to say it. A mm-hmm. little less dramatic than that, but along yeah. those lines. And it's located about two to three centimeters above the pubic symphysis. And important here, so you can damage those superficial epigastric arteries at the lateral part of the incision in the subcutaneous tissue. So that's something to keep an eye out for. And also important here, the rectus muscles are not cut. You dissect the fascia superiorly and inferiorly, but you keep those muscles intact, which is an important part as we move forward. So the next incision I'll chat about, Ned, what's that one called? Joel Cohen. Yeah, so this one is not going to be that smiley face look. It's going to be straight across, so a straight line, transverse abdominal incision. So if you drew an invisible line connecting the anterior superior iliac spines on each side, so if we remember back to gross anatomy days, these are those bony prominences that you have bilaterally on the pelvis. Um, This incision is going to be about three centimeters below that line. It does end up being more cephalad or further up closer to the head than the fan and seal incision. Um, But again, here, the rectus muscles are not cut. So in both of the incisions we talked about, those rectus muscles stay intact. So what about those incisions where the rectus muscle is actually cut? Yes, so there's a Maillard technique. So this is one of those where the rectus muscle is transected or cut, which requires ligation of a vessel that we talked about before, the inferior epigastric artery. And this makes sense, right? Because we said that this was running on the posterior and lateral aspect of the muscle. So if we're cutting through that muscle, it makes sense that you would have to ligate the vessel before going ahead and doing that. Then there's also the chair knee incision. So this also, the rectus muscles will be cut at the insertion onto the pubic symphysis. And something to keep an eye out with this, so with this incision, osteomyelitis is a unique complication that you can have with this because it requires suturing of the tendons back onto the bone, which does make this a complication that you want to keep an eye out for. And which one do you see most often? I see fan and seal most often. That's what we tend to do at our institution the most. Great. So what about bladder flaps and uterine incisions? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is another term that you will hear when you're in a C-section, so both bladder flap as well as the uterine incision. So this is relevant to the anatomy of the pelvis just in general. So it's important to remember that your bladder is sitting right behind your pubic bone, followed by the uterus itself, and then the rectum will be behind that. So that's the order of the female pelvic anatomy. So if you hear the term bladder flap, to understand this term, it's important to go through what we just talked about. So what happens here is you want to get to the uterus at the lower uterine segment, so below, without injuring the bladder. So surgeons will make a bladder flap. So the idea here is that you make an incision in the vesicouterine peritoneum, which is the layer of that parietal peritoneum that rests between the bladder and the uterus. And this allows you to lower the bladder off of the uterus and push it down more with a bladder blade in order to make that incision on the uterus itself, which we called a hysterotomy before. And then just to talk about the uterine incision briefly, so there's three layers of the uterus um, from the outside to the inside, which are the serosal, the myometrium, and the endometrium. 
Um, And just remember when you're making this incision that those uterine vessels, which we'll talk about in future episodes in more detail, run on the lateral sides of the uterus. And as you can imagine, in pregnancy, the uterus gets a lot of blood flow and really want to make sure we avoid contact with these vessels. So to finish off episodes, we're going to go with our surgical snippets to review the high-yield portions of the episode. So the first one from Ned's story, the patient is awake and can hear what is going on. Ned, walk us through those layers of the abdominal wall again. Yep, layers of the abdominal wall. You've got skin, most superficial, subcutaneous tissue underneath, campers fascia, and then scarpus fascia. You have the muscles that we talked about, the transversalis fascia, and the parietal peritoneum. And then the blood supply to the abdominal wall, you want to thank your epigastric arteries. So the superior epigastric artery is a branch of the internal thoracic artery. Your inferior epigastric artery that it meets up with is a branch of the external iliac artery. And your superficial epigastric artery is a branch of the femoral artery. And which type of incision might you damage that superficial epigastric artery? That would be the fan and steel incision. Yes, so remember that this incision and the Joel-Cohen incision do not cut the rectus muscle, while the Cherney and Maynard incision do involve its transection. And the Cherney incision, think osteomyelitis, is a complication. And then the bladder is anterior to the uterus, and you do not want to hurt it. That is the name of the game in a lot of OBGYN procedures is do not hurt the bladder. So a bladder flap is going to be an incision that you make in the vesicouterine peritoneum that lets you lower the bladder further down away from where you need to incise the uterus. And as a student, you might actually be asked to hold a bladder blade, which is a little instrument in the procedure, uh, to help keep that bladder out of the way for the surgeons. I got really good at that on the rotation. Exactly. So thank you so much for listening to our first episode.